Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Mike TZ, and I'm joined today by Joe Anity. Hey, Joe. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Hanging in there, getting some water, you know, cooling down a little bit. It's kind of warm today. It is warm, and it's warm in here for some reason. Yeah, so. Yeah. This should be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this episode, we're going to resume our consideration of the doctrines of grace or Calvinism. But I should warn you, listener, that we're not yet quite ready to uh, start talking about the five points of Calvinism. We're still going to be uh, going about the task of laying foundations. And so on that, you know, why, why the delay, Joe? Why are we spending so much time laying these foundations? What's important about it? I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about Calvinism over the years. Um, Those of you who know me and us could probably understand why that is. But, um, you know, I've asked the question, what is so so controversial about these doctrines? Why are they so difficult for people to come to terms with? Why do they cause so much division within the church? And um, one of the things that occurred to me is that, these these doctrines, the five points of Calvinism, TULIP, which we will eventually talk about, I, I do promise you that, um, I think they they, they kind of hit a nerve. You know, they, they touch upon things that go very deep um, within us. They kind of shake us to the core, if you will. And um, I think if people weren't raised in a tradition where, where Calvinism was taught or the doctrines of grace were taught, um, the, these doctrines have a way – of forcing us to go back and reconsider some very foundational things that maybe we hadn't thought about before. You know, maybe we hadn't asked the question, am am I, am I right in my assumptions about these things? And so, um, I think they do touch upon and force us to reconsider some of our core, um, perspectives on major worldview, um, issues as Christians. And so it's not just, uh, okay, well, I will accept these new principles that I've just learned of, but it's rather, oh my goodness, I need to go back and actually reconsider some things that I, I, I used to assume were correct and perhaps they're not. And so I think for that reason, it's important for us to kind of ease into the five points of Calvinism um, and say, let, let's deal with some of those foundational worldview issues before we start to touch upon the doctrines themselves, you know, as a way to kind of get ahead of the game. I've actually heard of some guys that say, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm a seven-point Calvinist. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. <laughs> People just kind of roll their eyes at that and go, here we go, someone even more extreme in their Calvinism. That's really not the case. I think what they're doing is actually saying um, – and I can't even think of who does that, but I know people have done it before. But I think what they're doing is they're kind of lumping into the five points a couple of others saying we also need to touch upon this and that because it's so central to the issue at hand. You know, um, Everybody has a worldview. Yeah. We look at the world through particular lenses, if you will. You know, um, Every human being who has ever lived, I think, has to deal with some big common questions like who is God? And who are we as human beings? And where did this world come from? Uh, if there is a God, how are we to relate to him? How do we, how do we come to him? Um, is there life after death? And if so, uh, are there different types of life after death, different qualities of life after death? And what determines where you go? I mean, these are just like major worldview issues that I would, I would say um, people hold to views on these things, oftentimes without ever really thinking to themselves, why do I hold to these views? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's kind of what I'm talking about here. Um, uh, the need to step back first of all, and to ask the question: Am I viewing the world 
in a proper way? Do I have the right views about uh, God and about uh, who He is and right. and, and how He um, how we are to relate to Him and so on and so forth? Um, so th- that's what I mean by worldview, and that's kind of what we're doing here is we're dealing with the question of uh, is is my worldview biblical? Is it fully developed and, and thoroughly developed as, as a Christian? Right. That's a, that's what we're doing here a little bit. What are what are the worldview issues that you you've encountered that you find uh, Christians struggling with the most? Well, I think I should say from the outset, you know, all Christians have to agree upon a lot, you know, uh, in terms of our our, our view of the world, um, or else we couldn't even call ourselves Christians. Right. I mean, so we already have so much in common, no matter what we think about the doctrines of grace, right? Uh, all Christians are, are are going to have confessed that there is a God, uh, that he is triune, that he is to be approached through the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by faith. And so we're already green upon so many things. I, you know, the thing that comes to mind is the Apostles' Creed, which is a very basic statement of faith, and it touches upon those major worldview issues. I believe in one God, you know, so monotheism. I believe in one God, uh, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So monotheism, but Trinitarian, all of a sudden we see. Uh, the creed goes on to talk about the virgin birth, talks about Christ's suffering for us, talks about his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection after that, and, uh, you know, the, the way that he is now working through the church, um, uh, through the communion of the saints, and so on and so forth. So the, the Apostles' Creed is yeah. a great example of something that, that kind of gives a summary of these big worldview questions that, that we all agree upon. But but the thing to be noticed that um, when I say that a Christian may lack a fully developed worldview, I'm obviously talking about things that are kind of subcategories of these main worldview questions, like is there a God? Um so once we have confessed that there is a God, the next thing we must do is go on to ask the question, what is he like? You know, what are his attributes? How does he relate to the world that he has created? What are his purposes for creating as he did? Um, it's questions like these that I'm talking about here where Christians oftentimes have some disagreements over um, and and so that's what I want to deal with. Two things come to mind really that I'd like to walk through uh, today. Uh, the first question is this. Um, how are we to understand God's relation to his creation today? Mm-hmm. How does he relate to it? Uh, maybe a, a, a simple way to put it is, is he hands-on or hands-off uh, when it comes to the things that happen in human history? You know, And if he is hands-on, which I think most Christians would definitely confess that. Right. To what degree is he hands-on? You know, how much so? Um, the second thing has to do with the question, what is the purpose for all that we see around us? What is the, what is the meaning of all? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? You know, I mean, it's just big issues, right? But I think Christians tend to disagree on these things from time to time, and they do impact um, how we eventually view the doctrines of grace that we will come to talk about, I think, you know. Um, everyone does have an opinion about these things, by the way. Yeah, even if they don't realize it. I, I was definitely in that camp before, so and I could very well be again at some point. So it's like you have to realize that we are biased or something to some things without whether or not we realize yeah. it or not. So it may be that a Christian hasn't read a book on the issue of 
what we'll come to call sovereignty or providence, and they haven't sat down and given much thought to it. But they, they, everyone assumes that God is involved with some things and maybe not involved with others, you know, depending on what their view is. It's just there, kind of, it develops naturally over time. Also, I even remember when I was a kid, you know, uh, people would talk, well, what is the meaning of life, you know? And it's kind of presented as the unanswerable question or something, right? Mm-hmm. But people, they live with some sort of understanding that this is the purpose of it, you know, Absolutely. this is the meaning of all. And then all of their behavior actually flows from that. We can believe things for a long time without even realizing why, why, or where we got that information or, you know, what right. it's based on. So, and, and these questions are not unimportant. They, they do have a dramatic impact on the way we live our life. And I, I guess before we move on, we, we should acknowledge that the Bible does speak to these things. These are not unanswerable questions. They're actually questions that the Bible addresses. Uh, God gives us the information we need uh, concerning these things so that we might live as we ought to live uh, before him. Right. Well, so what are we to think concerning that question then? How does God relate to the world that he has created? Is he hands-on or hands-off? Yeah, I was in preparation for this, uh, this episode. I was thinking to myself, how do I in a very brief way, give an answer to that because it's such a huge question, right? Um, books have been written, you know, many books have been written on this subject. A lot, a lot of ink has been spilled. So how do I give a, a brief answer to it? And, and I thought of uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 5, uh, just paragraph 1. There's many paragraphs, by the way, in chapter 5, and I would encourage you to go read them all because they do kind of flesh out what is said here in the introductory paragraph of this chapter. But the, the chapter is dealing with the providence of God, it's dealing with this very issue that we're talking about. And here's what it says. I think it's beautifully written, and I think it's so true to Scripture. It says, God, the good creator of all things, uh, the previous chapter I think was dealing with creation, so it builds upon that, right? God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth, just to use the old English there because I like it, right? He upholds directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for the which they were created accordingly unto his infallible foreknowledge and to the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And I think that's a very beautiful summary of of the the biblical doctrine of providence. It's the doctrine that is actually seeking to answer that question, you know, um, uh, how is it that God is relating now to the world that he has created? I love the, the, the statement because it's, it's pretty thorough. We are reminded that God is God at the beginning. That, that's just kind of the place you need to start, right? God, uh, who is good, that also needs to be said, especially when we're uh, discussing a doctrine like this. There are um, other issues that we will have to work through over time, you know, uh, that, that kind of flow from the doctrine of providence that have caused some to question the goodness of God, right? Because we see suffering and right. evil. So I think it's good that um, the, the confession begins with this. We are talking about God and he is the good creator of all things. So right now, just in that first little opening line there, we're reminded that, that God is the good creator of all things. Everything is his. Nothing existed prior to him, you know, he spoke everything that exists into existence. So that already sets our minds in the proper place. He is, right. he is Lord over all, right? Um, and then from there, we are uh, told of his infinite power. 
So we are reminded that that God has power over all, all things. It's not as if he's struggling to maintain control of anything. He is, he is God Almighty. He is also infinitely wise. That's a very important principle here that uh, God, God is God is wisdom. He is wise beyond our imagination, right? Um, he knows what he's doing. And then we are told that he does a number of things uh, within creation. He, first of all, upholds creation. I think that speaks to his preserving of creation. He directs the things that happen in, in, in creation, that he causes certain things to happen. He, he disposes uh, the things that happen in creation, to be honest with you, I need to do a little more uh, study as to what um, the Lena Baptist Confession means by the word disposes here. This is old English, you know, mm-hmm. I need to search around here. But I think the idea is that he, he just he supports everything. And then the last word that is used here is that he governs. In other words, he rules and controls all things. Um, that is the, the image that is given to us here in the Confession. I think it's a very good summary of Scripture, uh, the Scripture teaching. And I think it's important to notice that he does this in, in regard to all creatures and things from the greatest to the least. So he does this with everything, everyone. And it is by his most wise and holy providence. Again, it is wise and it is holy. It's his providence. He governs all things to the end for the, which they were created. So there's a suggestion here being made that will be developed later in the confession that, that things were made for a reason. Uh, history is going in a particular particular direction for a reason, for a purpose. It's not just random. And as this continues on, we are told finally that all of this is according unto his infallible foreknowledge. What that means is that history is unfolding in accordance with, in harmony with, what God has determined ahead of time, Hmm. uh, what he has decreed. What you need to do actually is go back to chapter 3, of the London Baptist Confession and read what it has to say there concerning God's decree. Uh, Paragraph one, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever that come to pass. So now this chapter on providence is picking up on that principle from chapter three and, and is saying not only has God decreed all things in eternity past, but now he's actually moving everything along according to his plans and according to his purposes. So um, this is according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. The point being made here is that God is the one who is free. He is the one who is determined to do certain things in eternity past, and he is the one who is free to carry those things about according to his his purposes, according to his will. And so – I think it is fair to say in response to the question, um, is God hands-on or hands-off? Our belief is that he's very, very, very much hands-on. Praise God that he is. <laughs> I agree with that. But it's funny how this this bothers people. I mean, it's not funny. You, you know what I mean. It, right. it's, it's interesting how this bothers Christians. I, <clears throat> I've said it over and over again throughout the years that when I was a sophomore in college, uh, I was really confronted with the doctrines of grace, Calvinism. And I've made the comment that my sophomore year in college was kind of ruined by – I mean that's a bit of an over-exaggeration. It was a good year. But it, it was one of those years where I felt like I had to go back and reconsider everything. And then someone kind of challenged me with that. They're like, really, Joe? What, were you that surprised uh, about Calvinism, the five points of it? And I had to stop and think. And speak a little bit more clearly, I think. If I were 
to speak precisely about this, the thing that required a lot of thought wasn't so much do the scriptures teach total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance. It wasn't so much that because honestly I I, I was brought up uh, being taught some of those things and I think I was brought up assuming some of those things. If I were to speak most precisely, I think it would be that those doctrines being presented to me most fully forced me to go back and reconsider what we're talking about right now, these foundational the worldview, worldview issues. Yeah, right. Uh, in terms of the extent of God's providence and the extent of his decree and the question of why are we here ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for for whose purposes, you know. Uh, I think uh, – what, what do you think about that, Mike? I mean just in your experience, would you agree that these are the things that people struggle with the most? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean it, it's scriptures clearly the, like these words you know the, uh, that are in the doctrine, doctrines of grace are clearly in scripture so these teachings are clearly there but but how we you know experience them and and the day to day the world the world view that we perceive like how does that play out mm-hmm. and uh the biggest one is is free will which we we talked about that a little bit earlier yeah, a but, little bit um and I'm excited to keep talking about that in the future but right. you know that's the one that that really impacts people the most I think is how that practically yeah. works out. I, I read really quickly from the London Baptist Confession 5.1. Again, I would encourage you to read the rest of the paragraphs in that chapter. Uh, also, the London Baptist Confession chap, uh, chapter 3 has some very important things stated there. And I mentioned in an earlier episode that for those who really want to learn more about Calvinism, uh, it, it, it's not that helpful just to look at the acronym TULIP. It would be better to go and to look at the document that that acronym was kind of pulled from, which right. are the canons of Dort. And the thing you'll notice about the canons of Dort um, is that it's a pretty robust and full explanation, a fairly full explanation of, of uh, the doctrines of grace, but also it, it touches upon some of these worldview issues that we're just barely touching upon now um, in our time together. But I don't know, I thought I'd work through just a few points here before we move on maybe to the, that next question that we were going to consider. Um, just some general observations um, one is this, that God must be sovereign if he is truly God. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I would hope all Christians would agree that the God we worship is God most high. He is God almighty. He is Lord of all creation. It, it, everything is under his control, you know, uh, and for Christians to start to suggest that God is not sovereign over all things makes me so nervous. It's like then there are things outside of God's control mm-hmm. and, and there are factors that he doesn't have his hands on. And, and just think about what that will ultimately do to the rest of your theology, the rest of uh, your understanding of, of God and where human history is heading. Um, I, I just think it, it's such a general observation to be made that the God of the Bible is God most high. He, he is sovereign over all. And if he's not sovereign, sovereign over all, then in, in a sense, I know this sounds extreme, but if he's not sovereign over all, he actually ceases to be God because there is something in the universe that is now competing with him. Right. You know, that, that he does or not... something able to thwart his will. Or, exactly. You know. Yeah. So it's pretty significant. Um it's kind of a philosophical thing to think about, I guess, but it's important. One of the, like touching on that, I think, I don't know if we mentioned it in a previous episode, but you know, how do we pray? And it's interesting because even, even someone that 
maybe would disagree with the doctrines of grace, you know, would still pray with this understanding that God is sovereign, this this right. belief that really God is in control and able to to mold and shape us. Right. Um, yeah. So if we believe that God is hands off, or if that He is right. determined to be hands off, then why do we pray to Him as if He is exactly. hands on in regard to everything? You know. Um, just think about this, though. If anything is clear in the Bible, is that it is that things are moving towards a determined end. And in order for something to move toward a determined end, is it not also necessary that someone be controlling the means, the, the process by which that end is brought about? You know, so I think just that there is a determined end um, suggests that God is sovereign over all of these things. I think also kind of a subcategory to that, I guess, about all of the fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament on into the New, you know, in the way that Christ fulfilled those things. I mean, in order for them to be fulfilled by Christ, does it also not necessitate that God himself was bringing about all of the factors needed to um, right. have Christ come in the fullness of time and and, and, and to do these things, you know? Um I want to eventually get to some key biblical texts, but I was also thinking it, it is helpful to talk about some key biblical stories. Um, I guess in a way, I just talked about the key biblical story, right. which is the history of redemption. You know, um, the the the, the, the meta narrative. You know, the overarching story of the Bible, which is God's redemption of 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 man. Um, so that's the biggest story, I guess. But I also think of the story of Job. Mm-hmm. You know. It's a difficult book, but it's a helpful one because it does begin to give a little bit of answers to the to the problem of evil. You know, why why do people suffer? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that is clear in the book of Job is that um, it, Satan himself had to approach the throne of God to ask permission to do what he did right. to Job. Um, that's what's revealed to us. And so the suffering that Job encountered was not outside of God's control. God did not do it to him in an active first cause sort of way. But we have to admit that God permitted these things to happen to Job. And we also have to see from that book um, that God permitted these things to happen to Job, not randomly and purposelessly, is that a word? I don't know. <laughs> it works. It works. <laughs> it works. Uh, there, there, there was there was a purpose mm-hmm. uh, to God's um, uh, allowing of these things to happen uh, to this most righteous man on the earth. You know, right. at the, at that time. So that's key. I also think of the story of Joseph. You know, uh, you, you, it's a complex story with very many twists and turns. Right. Uh, actually, one bad thing after the next happening to Joseph. Um, sometimes men were acting, were acting very, acting very, very wicked, wickedly in order to oppress Joseph. It seems very unjust, you know, time and again. Um, but at the end of it all, when Joseph sees his brothers again, you know, he says something astonishing. You meant it for evil, right? But God meant it for good. I mean, these stories mean something. They, they, what we have to see is that these stories are actually setting out to answer major worldview questions, you know, for, for the, for the Hebrews to whom these stories were uh, given to the people who originally experienced them, you know, and for us today, they're preserved in order to answer these major worldview questions. Where is God in relation to the world he has created? Where is he in the midst of suffering? And Job and Joseph are telling us, um, 
quite clearly that uh, he's right there in the middle of it, hands on. Uh, you meant it for me, uh, against me for evil, but but God God had greater purposes in it, and He brought all of this about for His desired ends. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've already touched upon the Christ and the fact that He came when the fullness of time had come, and that definitely necessitates that there is a sovereign God who is directing all things towards these ends. People always want Bible texts, though, you know. Show me the verse. (laughs) There are plenty of them, I think. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. It's powerful. This is God saying, I have purposed to do things from eternity past, and because I am God, right, Um, and there is no other besides me, I'm going to get it done. My will will be accomplished is what Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says to us. Um, I think also of that famous verse in the New Testament, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So God has a way of bringing all things together and working them for for good, for those who, who love God. Um, the, you know, the one verse, though, that sticks out to me in regard to the question, okay, if God is hands-on, to what degree is Matthew 10, 29 through 30, where Jesus says, and uh, not two sparrows, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. This is stated elsewhere in the New Testament too. He's comforting Christians, saying to them, He's comforting his people, saying to them, God cares for you. He, he knows your needs. He's concerned for you. And what he does, he, say, he says, look at, look at the birds of the air. Look at the little sparrows. Not one of them dies, falls to the ground, apart from the will of the Father. So the scriptures do teach this, that God is hands-on and very much so, even down... Uh, to touching the life of, of, of a little bird, of a sparrow, and then he applies it to us more precisely, talking about the hairs on our head being numbered. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, what is the point of that unless the scripture is revealing to us that God is very much hands-on in regard to his creation? Hebrews 1.3 also talks about how Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and how he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God not only created the universe through the eternal word of God, the eternal son of God, um, but we're also told that the eternal word of God, the eternal son of God, upholds the universe by his word of the power. So he's he's very much active in all of this. We are not what I would call dualists, which believe that there is this – you know, good power in the universe and this evil power in the universe and the two are at odds with one another and only time will tell as to who will win. Right. Uh, no, we, we believe that there is one God who is supreme and sovereign over all. 
Um, I was reminded of this Genesis 17.1 passage. Uh, uh, this is when Abram uh, was being uh, called by God and a covenant was being made with him. Um, we're simply told that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This is the God of the Bible, God Almighty, God Most High. So this is key, right? I mean, this is not a little issue here. And, and yet, again, I think what happens when we start to talk about the doctrine of salvation and when we start to suggest that maybe the scriptures teach that God is sovereign even over salvation, that he is determined to save some from eternity past and he is bringing about those purposes as he reigns supreme over creation, um, you know, bringing them to faith in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, effectual calling, all, all of that stuff. It, it's just interesting how quick we are to say, no, 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 no. God is hands off in regard to these things. God is a gentleman. He would never force himself. You know, those right, sort of yeah, phrases. Definitely heard that phrase. It's like, wait a minute here. This just seems to be a major inconsistency mm-hmm. in terms of how we're talking about the God of the Bible. You know. This leads really to a question I've, I've heard many times. I've been asked a few times and it's been leading to great conversation, but the question, what is the meaning of it all? You know, what is the purpose for which God created the world? Yeah. Um, and this really is central to, and I think this could actually be more shocking to Christians than to the, than the other question uh, is, I think the answer to it is this. If we work all of this out as far as we can go and we say, why was the universe created? Why has human history unfolded the way that it has? The the answer we have to give, if it's to be a biblical answer, is that all things happen for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. You know, um, That's where the scriptures take us time and time again. These things right. are for the glory of God. That raises all sorts of other questions, of course, that we probably can't deal with in our short time together here. But but it seems to be the end of the road um, as we study Scripture. Do we want to know more? Yeah, maybe. We probably do. But this is where the Scriptures take us, that, that it's for God's glory that such and such thing has happened or that the world was created um, ultimately. The, the confession, actually, I read par- uh, chapter 5, paragraph 1 earlier, but I didn't finish it out. I, I left the little end of it uh, for, for, for this point here. Uh, we're talking about God's providence over all things. And then paragraph one ends with these words, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Mm-hmm. To, the praise of his, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. All of this is happening to the glory of God. And the language of the confession just it mirrors what we hear time and again in the scriptures. This is scriptural language. You know, I think of Isaiah 48, 11, where God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. And uh, I'm thinking back to my days at, at, at Cal Baptist, sophomore year that was ruined by these things. And I remember one professor driving this point home time and again, you know, um, I don't, it, it took a while for it to settle with me, I guess, but, uh, this idea that God does not share his glory with anyone and he is motivated to um, 
bring glory and, and honor to, to his own, to his own name, you know, this is what Ephesians one, three through six says too. blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according so we should listen up right now, okay? According to, why did he do it? Or you know, what was the thing motivating all of this? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's the phrase I'd like for people to remember. To the praise of his glorious grace. You know, if you could just get that to stick in your head, I, I think it'll do you well, you know, that, that God works all things to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, and then I, I, I'm reminded, too, of that passage in Romans chapter 9. Yeah, I love this one. So. Yeah. People criticize Calvinists for always going to Romans 9, so I almost hesitate to even <laughs> say it, you know. Um, I don't know. We talk it's a lot about— such a great direct, you know, answer it, to the question, though, and it's— yeah. A, yeah. We, we talk a lot about a lot of other scripture texts rather, right. other than Romans 9. Okay. We, we, yeah. Anyways, a little pet peeve of mine. It irritates me when people do this. The reason so, – so Romans 9 is here for a reason though. Mm-hmm. It is important. It's not unimportant. We need to talk about it. And it's actually in Romans 9 where Paul is directly addressing the question, why mm-hmm. has God done this? Why has he chosen some and not others? It's like he's directly addressing that question here. So it's no wonder that we look to Romans 9 um, as a key place to go to say, what does Paul say, you know, as to why God does these things? And he's actually, he, he raises this hypothetical objection, people raising their fist up to God saying, why, you know, why have you made me like this? Or, you know, God can't hold me responsible if he's determined these things, if he's mm-hmm. predestined these things, you know, so... Uh, he raises the hypothetical objection, um, uh, you know, and then he begins to answer it. And at first he just rebukes people saying, who are you to answer back to God? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable, another for dishonorable? It's not a direct quotation, I know. But he, he moves on from there in verse 22 saying, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, so you should think glory there. Right, I mean that's the, that's the idea here. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It's kind of a negative thought there, I guess, in, in a way. But what's being said is that what if God wants to display the glory of His justice, of His holiness? Of course, that comes to the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, in kind of a negative way through judgment. But nevertheless, it's an aspect of God's of God's nature, of his of his attributes being displayed in a glorious fashion. And, th- and that's where Paul takes us in it. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And then he moves on from there and says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Again, when Paul, when we get to the end of the road with Paul, when we go as far as we possibly can, you know, in regard to the question, what is all of this for and why has God done it like this? What's the purpose of it all? 
we're left with this answer. It's for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's possible for some to not be satisfied with that, but it's where the scriptures take us and and ultimately leave us, you know. I, I know there are some who hear I, I know there are some who hear that and they think to themselves, Man, God sounds like an egomaniac, right? Um for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. And how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. You know, what's up with this God that he's doing everything for his own, name, own namesake and for the praise of his glorious grace, you know? Um, but the thing that needs to be recognized is that some things that are wrong for us are right for God. You know, it's wrong for any human being to stand up and to say, for my own name's sake, for my own name's sake, I will do it. I will not give my glory to another. That's sin, right? And why is it sin? You know, it's sin because that individual is a man and not God. But it's right for God to do it. It's right for God to say it because he is God. And for him to give glory to anything else would be sin on his part. It would be idolatrous. You know, it would be false worship. Mm. Not only would it be sin, but it would be to our detriment if he were to give glory to another. Because in giving glory to another, he would actually be drawing attention away from himself, the one true and holy and pure and good and, you know, lovely thing in the universe. And he would be directing it towards something less than him. And we would be negatively impacted by that, I guess, you know. Um, and so I, that's the thing that needs to be recognized here. When we talk about all things being for the glory of God, it's right for God to bring glory to himself. And in the end, it's actually for our good because our greatest good is found in God. And so it is only right that God glorify himself that we might come to him and worship him as the one true God and find fullness uh, fullness in, in that, you know. Which is what we were created for. Which is what we were created exactly. for, yeah. to, to worship God. Yeah. Uh, sin at its heart is love misdirected. It's love, you know, uh, given to the to the wrong things in, in a wrong way and to a wrong degree, you know. Um, I, I was just thinking to myself, I know it's been a, a very popular phrase. Um, it's not about me. Christians like to say it's not about me. And I, I just think, right, right? yeah, right. I, um, more than you know, more than you know, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about his glory and his purposes. That's something that's so beautiful about this, you know, these doctrines. This is hammered home so much. This, you know, it really is not about me. And, that you know, the doctrines of grace really, really emphasize that in a beautiful way. It's it's humble. It's it's a humble doctrine. It's, right. you know, it's emphasizing God and his is his hands on this, his work in us and through mm-hmm. us. And It's God-centered. Uh, it's Christ-centered. Mm-hmm. It's God-exalting. And when I hear people object to Calvinism, I hear them using the word I and we and me a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my rights. I have my freedom. God would never violate my choice. And so on and so forth. I mean, they're filled with misconceptions about the doctrine anyways. But, you you, you know, it it just seems to me, and I know this might be offensive to some, but it just seems to me to be incredibly man-centered. You know, the question we'll come to ask ultimately is this, is who controls salvation? Yeah. Uh, When we go through the five points of Calvinism, we're going to just keep that question in mind. Who controls salvation? And there's only two possible answers to it. Either it's God, either it ends with him, 
or it's man. Mm-hmm. It ends with man. Yeah. And, and, and we're saying that given what we've talked about here, um, it has to be God if he indeed is uh, God Almighty, Lord Most High. You know, it has to be him. Um, not only do these truths imply it, uh, but the scriptures explicitly state it, that it is indeed God. Um, so these doctrines are important. They're, you know, one thing I do want to say before we close is that these doctrines are important in and of themselves, okay? Right. It's, it's important for you to know that God is sovereign over everything, and that ought to bring comfort to you. That's how Christ used this doctrine when he's encouraging the Christians. Are not, you know, sparrows sold for pennies? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. What is he doing there? He's, he's comforting Christians saying God is intimately involved in all the details of your life. Every single one. You know, Some go, well, then why did God allow me to suffer or for this bad thing to happen to me? Listen, we don't have the answers to all of that. But isn't it comforting to know that God is there and that these things aren't hap- happening randomly? Yeah, there's some underlying end purpose. There's a purpose. There's, there's a reason. The, 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 the almighty, most holy, most loving, most wise God, the good God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he's behind it. Somehow he's allowing it. He's permitting it to bring about something greater, more glorious. First of all, his glory and then also our good uh, through it. It should be, bring comfort to you. And also knowing that all things are for the glory of God, I think should bring um, a healthy perspective on proper priorities, you know, and a healthy perspective on life in general. So these doctrines are very important in and of themselves, but my hope at least is that you see how these doctrines are also helpful in kind of um, giving us a foundation upon which to understand the doctrines of grace. You know, once you understand sovereignty, once you understand all things for the glory of God, I think you're in a much better position to then start to talk about uh, how salvation is applied to individuals in time. You know, that's my hope at least. Yeah. Well, thank you, listener, for tuning in. It's been an awesome to have this conversation with you, Joe. And, um, Looking forward to, to more as we keep digging into this. What are, where are we going next, actually, in the next episode? I think, unless I have some epiphany between now and the next one, right, uh, I think we'll dig into the tea in Tulip, you All know, right. and start to talk yeah. about total depravity. So yeah. look forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be good. Well, thank you again for tuning in to Confessing the Faith, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.